Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Anna Jejitz. She has written a fantastic book which is called Foreign Judges in the Pacific and it was published last year in 2021 by Hart Publishing. Now Anna holds a postdoctoral fellowship in the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law at Melbourne Law School. And before we get started, I just want to tell you a little bit of how I got to know Anna. So I first saw her speaking at a conference when I was a PhD student at the University of Hong Kong. And so she was speaking at the Icon S um, conference, which is the International Society of Public Law. And I remember going along to this panel, um, partly because there were some Australian constitutional lawyers who had actually taught me at law school. And I was blown away, and I still remember, it was quite a few years ago, but I was blown away by this amazing woman and her research, and I just, I needed to know more about it. Um, So, you know, fast forward a few years later, and um, Anna actually came to HKU to do a postdoc, and I was still finishing my PhD, but actually I got to know her then. Um, Her research was so interesting, I just, I felt like, and also, also, she seemed like such a lovely person. I just, I had to get to know her. Um, so honestly, it was a really great pleasure reading her book and sort of seeing it, it come out. Um, but without further ado, Dr. Anna Jezitz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jane, and thank you for such a nice introduction. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, so I've sort of t- mentioned a little bit about how I got to know you, but before we talk more about the book. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to write Foreign Judges in the Pacific? Sure. So I am a legal scholar. I'm from Australia um, and I am interested in constitutional law, um, you know, institutions of government and how they work. So I work mainly in the area of comparative constitutional law um, and I focus on uh, constitutions in the Asia-Pacific region um, but also a bit further afield. Um, so this book is kind of based on my PhD thesis um, and I started thinking about this in maybe 2015 um, and for my PhD I didn't have a topic in mind at the start, I just knew I really wanted to write about the constitutions um, of a Pacific Island state or the Pacific more generally. So I've been really lucky to volunteer for a little while with the Samoa Law Reform Commission um, and by that point I'd also done some work with some Fijian NGOs in relation to their new constitution which was made in 2013 um, and I'd become so fascinated with how uh, Pacific Uh, constitutional systems worked and how kind of Western forms of governance that had been kind of imposed or adopted through colonisation coexisted with these Indigenous customary uh, laws and values. So I wanted, I knew I wanted to undertake a PhD that would help me understand um, some of these kind of questions a bit better. Um, And 
eventually I came to the issue of foreign judges as the PhD topic to settle on, which did let me explore some of these broader issues that I was also interested. So, yes, and then from there I wrote the book. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. Um, so I guess can you tell me, just to concept, uh, contextualise it a bit, so it is this sort of, glo- you describe it as a global exception, um, but a regional norm, and that's the sort of the introduction to the book. Can you tell me about this global exception regional norm of foreign judging in the Pacific? Yeah, so I kind of, um, I think what I mean by this can be summed up in kind of some of the typical reactions that I would get when I was explaining my research to people um, over the years. So I would talk to academics and people who weren't from the Pacific, um, especially people from Europe and the Americas, and I'd say, you know, I'm researching foreign judges in the Pacific, and they'd be like, what do you mean? And i go, well, there's a lot of non-citizens who are sitting on the benches of courts and deciding constitutional cases all across the region, and their reaction would be like, what? You know, how can that even be possible? I never knew such a thing could happen. And it, you know, maybe, you know, their reaction was it could never happen at home for them. Um, How can judges not be drawn from the jurisdiction? But then on the other hand, when I would go to the Pacific um, countries or when I talk to lawyers and students and others from those countries, their reaction to my topic was like, well, yeah, you know, foreign judges, what about it? They've been sitting on our courts ages it's just normal practice Um, that's just how it works and so this kind of disjunct was fascinating to me so we've got this kind of exceptional practice um, in in global experience if you like particularly when you're talking to people from countries that tend to dominate conversations in comparative law Um, and it's kind of also exceptional in the sense that I think many of the theories that scholars have developed to think about, you know, judges and judiciaries and what they do are built on this unspoken assumption that judges are citizens um, and they come from the jurisdiction that they then serve in as judges. Um, and so the fact that in the Pacific foreign judges is foreign judging is a normal practice, um, I thought provided a really great kind of case study to unpack and maybe challenge some of the assumptions um, about judging and, you know, ask, you know, what, if anything, is different when judges are foreign judges? Yeah, I found that, I mean, I know personally when I arrived in Hong Kong, I found that really fascinating that, for example, the courts in Hong Kong, um, and I know that's not the subject of your book, but it is something that you do touch upon. So there are these non-permanent judges in Hong Kong who are not local judges. And I was just sort of, I was, I just find it fascinating and really bizarre coming from Australia because, as you say, the sort of working assumption is that that that's just not possible. Um, it seems really strange. So yeah. can you tell me about some of the rationales for foreign judges in the Pacific or just generally? Yeah, so just going back to the Hong Kong point before I get to the rationales, um, of course, since starting to think about foreign judges they kind of pop up everywhere so while I say it's an exceptional practice um, I keep discovering and, and people keep telling me about oh you know foreign judges sit here and they sit on these in these places and on different kinds of courts so um, there are probably about 30 jurisdictions around the world where foreign judges sit on constitutional courts or courts of constitutional jurisdiction Um, and quite a few more where foreign judges sit on other kinds of courts. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, an exceptional but not uncommon (laughs) practice if that's a a possible way to talk about it. So the reasons why um, countries or jurisdictions use foreign judges um, are kind of interesting. And so the four rationales that I focus on and developed out of my research in the context of the Pacific uh, whereas I kind of found four. Um, so the first one I I call the transitional rationale. So this, this is where there's a shortage of qualified citizens who are willing and able to take up judicial appointment. Um, and where that's the case, a foreign judge can kind of step in and fill the gap um, until there are local judges who are available. Um, a second rationale that sometimes comes up is capacity building. So this idea that foreign judges provide expertise and knowledge um, and build the capacity of Pacific courts and personnel. Um, this is quite a contested rationale. It's quite a sensitive one, um, but it's also popular, particularly where the judicial 
position is funded by an overseas aid organisation. They love talking about capacity building. Um, a third one I call reputation. Um, and we see this one, I think, most clearly in Hong Kong as well as in some Pacific contexts. And this is the idea that foreign judges kind of enhance the reputation of the Pacific court. Um, and again, there are some perhaps problematic assumptions built into this, um, but where, you know, foreign judges are, you know, eminent judges, they're retired Supreme Court judges in their home jurisdiction, you know, that, that sometimes you can borrow the prestige of those judges and enhance the reputation of your court. Um, and the final um, rationale that I uh, found in the Pacific context is impartiality. So this idea that foreign judges are distant from the community um, and distant from local politics and therefore provide um, a degree of impartiality. Um, often you hear this around the framing that, you know, in the Pacific, countries are small, everybody knows everyone else, and so... Um, people are more likely to trust um, an impartial, uh, distant foreign adjudicator. I have some problems with this rationale too because unless it's very carefully framed, it runs the risk of suggesting that local judges can never be impartial, which I just don't think is the case. Um, so I would frame this a little more narrowly, um, but it's certainly um, a common one to hear. Um, looking further afield beyond the Pacific, um, you can find some other rationales emerging. Um, so foreign judges are used in um, uh, post-conflict state-building contexts um, and deeply divided societies like Bosnia, Herzegovina, um, but they those rationales don't come out as clearly in the Pacific region. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And, I mean, one of the sort of key things that comes through in your book is this idea of, like, obviously constitutional interpretation and the impact of actually being a foreign judge on these sort of these rationales that come through. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about the impact of actually being a foreign judge um, in these rationales and especially in the context of constitutional interpretation. Like what's the impact? What did you find? Yeah, so that was part of... Part of what I really wanted to find out was, you know, it doesn't matter whether a judge is foreign or not, you know. So we, we see these um, good reasons why states would use foreign judges. Um, and there may be a view out there that it makes no difference whatsoever whether your judge is a, a foreigner or, or a citizen. You know, judges are all legally trained. Um, they share more than they're different, so does it actually matter? Um, so I can talk a bit later about how I came to think about how I structure that, that thinking. Um, but um, I think when it comes to constitutional adjudication and interpretation, um, there are some assumptions about the kinds of knowledge that citizens bring Um or local judges bring and foreign judges perhaps don't bring and assumptions about different knowledge that they themselves have. So um... so one of the, I mean, well, that was one of the things I found really, really interesting talking where you wrote about sort of the, um, like interpretation of local culture in cases and, you know, this sort of, you know, arguable an assumption around like a knowledge gap yeah, 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 exactly. So we, we, we think that, um, well, depending on, on your theory of constitutional interpretation, and I won't bore you with all the theoretical stuff. No, um, no, it's, it's interesting. There's different well, ways um, in which judges and different judges subscribe to different views about how a constitution ought to be interpreted. So, um, you know, one on one view, you know, that you just look at the text of the Constitution and the purpose of the, the Constitution and you apply that to the facts. And, and on that kind of understanding, then, then you know, foreign judges and local judges might bring much the same approach. But then on other kind of understandings of what judges do when they interpret a Constitution, it might become important to look to the social context. It might become important to look to underlying values um, of the legal system. Um, and generally speaking, I think we can assume that, that 
local judges might have access to those kind of that kind of knowledge um, in a kind of closer, more intimate way than foreign judges would. Um, and so in my research, I read a lot of constitutional cases that had been decided by Pacific courts that were comprised of foreign judges only or of a mixed bench of foreign and local judges and also, you know, decisions of local judges. And, you know, it's very hard to come up with a very clear difference between them all. But one thing I did notice was that um, that Pacific courts in general take quite a textualist approach to constitutional interpretation um, and that they draw a lot on common law ideas to interpret um, constitutions. And I think that that kind of fits with the use of foreign judges in this context in that um, it's understandable that foreign judges would, would draw on those two things that they have more knowledge and skills and experience in rather than turn to um, those more kind of uh, less accessible ideas of values and community standards. Yeah, so that's interesting. So then would you say like in your assessment and in your research you know, you can sort of reflect upon this sort of knowledge sharing in the development of law in the Pacific. Yeah, so that's kind of the flip side. So while I think that that foreign judges have what I call this knowledge gap when it comes to local conditions, which include local customary law, um, they also bring something. They have a knowledge reach, which um, is, you know, knowledge of their home jurisdiction and how their own constitutional systems work but perhaps also other ones. I mean, a lot of foreign judges work across many jurisdictions. Um, so in a sense, you can see how foreign judges might help to develop the law of the Pacific state by drawing on comparative experience. And um, that's often said to be a value of having foreign judges, um, particularly um, in the early years of a legal system, you know, when, when courts have just been established and, and the law is not as developed, the local law is not as developed. Um, but also you can see some risks with this approach too. So judges are like anybody. We all bring our own assumptions to the problems that we deal with. Um, and there's some really interesting cases where you see um you know, judges from different jurisdictions interpret the same problem and the same legal provision but bringing their assumptions about what it is that this this role or concept should be, um, you know, depending on whether they're from Australia or New Zealand or the UK. Um, so you do see how, how foreign judges can kind of bring their own baggage, if you like, <laughs> um, to, to the Pacific context, which may not be a problem, but it can be a problem, particularly if the Pacific countries made a real effort to localise and indigenise and develop a constitutional system that's appropriate for their context, um, which then judges should really respect. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I really, just jumping ahead a little bit um, in the book because it was a really fascinating quote um, and please, like, correct, correct my pronunciation, but it was Sir David Baragwanoff, um, I think, and he's a judge from the New Zealand Court of Appeal, and he was um, serving in Samoa. And so bringing this sort of idea of the two dimensions of knowledge together that, you know, judges are expected to have, you know, you sort of said they are, and this is what you write in the book, uh, they're expected to have a technical knowledge of the law and a knowledge of the social and political context within which the law operates. And so then quoting um, Sir Bagwanath, he said that um, in, in his experience. So he said, it is a real problem of which my first serious experience was as counsel before the Waitangi Tribunal in the Muruhuena, and again, I'm sorry about the pronunciation, the Muruhuena fishing case. When the enormity of the case dawned upon me, deprivation of the five tribes' access to fishing rights from being the wealthiest tribes in New Zealand to the poorest. I lost a stone in a week. It was my task to get inside their minds and look through their eyes in order to equip myself to represent them. I was looking across a cultural and racial divide at what my people had done to theirs. I had a similar challenge presiding in the Court of Appeal of Samoa, parachuting into other society with the responsibility for interpreting their constitution and administering justice according to their culture and their values. 
It is burdensome and impossible to achieve completely, but one's task is to try. So is there a sort of a way that you found that foreign judges both, oh, sorry, both foreign and local judges are able to con sort of confront their limits in knowledge of the law and the communities that they represent? Mm, so I, I included that quote um, because I found it a really honest and very kind of humble expression um, about the difficulties of being a judge, you know, whether you're at home and abroad. And it kind of makes the point that even citizen judges in their home jurisdiction can be, in a sense, foreign, you know, especially when the court created out of colonisation is called upon to adjudicate Indigenous people's laws. Um, so I, I thought it was a very personal and, you know, rounded explanation of what judges and lawyers do um, and, um, you know, shows that the law is not always clear. It is open to interpretation according to the values and culture of the people um, and that judging is a very difficult thing to do. I, I think um, I'm not and I work very hard in the book not to be critical of foreign judges. I think that they do a very challenging um, job. Um, and so I didn't want to seem, you know, hypercritical or suggest there's a right way and a wrong way to decide constitutional cases when the reality is far more complex. So I think that, um, that foreign judging whilst you know, maybe a niche kind of issue and, and, you know, only of concern in the Pacific really opens up this broader issue that confronts judges everywhere, which, you, as you put, is the limits of their knowledge of law and the communities they represent. Um, and so um, we see different ways in which judges deal with this um, and um foreign judges might deal with it a little bit differently than citizen judges might. Um, so in, with foreign judges where um, I think there is a reticence to engage um, as openly and clearly with community values because it's very difficult, I think, for a foreign judge to speak on behalf of a community that's not their community um, and so um, I think we see this reflected in a, perhaps a conservative approach to constitutional adjudication um, where courts are reluctant to push the law too far ahead of community values, which in their home jurisdictions they might be more comfortable doing. Um, and, of course, this is all covered by the caveat that courts everywhere are quite conservative um, and that um, there are exceptions. It's very difficult to generalise one particular approach to constitutional interpretation when judges each have a different approach and their approaches change over time and, and all of those kind of issues. And I guess then that sort of raises a question then. Um, who are the foreign judges that we're talking about? So this was part of my um, my project was to work this out. Um, there is no list there. Well, there is now. Now that I've written the book, there is. Um, but when I started, there was really no kind of uh, data on, on who judges were, how many foreign judges there were, um, and, how, and how they all end up in the Pacific. So um, statistically... The most common profile of a foreign judge is that they're Australian or New Zealand, um, that they're male and they kind of have judicial experience. So this is the kind of average picture of a foreign judge. Um, uh, in terms of numbers, um, there are about... So I... Sorry, let me go back. In terms of numbers, there is... So I, I just looked at a 20-year period um, from 2000 to 2019, and I looked at nine countries in the Pacific region. So I, I looked at um, Fiji, Kiribati, um, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu and Vanuatu. So that's the kind of scope of the research. So across these nine countries over that 20-year period, there were about 225 foreign judges out of about 30 judges as a whole across the region. Um, and, of course, there's different variations across different countries. Um, some have, you know, 100% foreign judges. Some have only, 
you know, 60, um, some have 30%. So there's different proportions across different countries um, and, of course, quite a lot of turnover and change over those times. Um, so in terms of who they are, um, well, like while I said that common profile is, you know, Australian New Zealand citizen male with judicial experience, um, there is quite a lot of diversity around this as well. So there are judges from the United Kingdom who have served in the Pacific. There's um, some inter-regional, uh, intra-regional um, recruitment. So judges from one Pacific country might serve in another Pacific country. Um, there are some um, African judges from common law states from the African continent. Um, and there are a lot of Sri Lankan judges who serve in Fiji. Um, in terms of professional background, I think we often assume that foreign judges are mostly retired judges who kind of want to continue to work after they retire in their home jurisdiction. Um, and this is certainly true. But in addition to that, you have a lot of foreign judges in the Pacific who are serving current judges in their home state. Um, and you've also got quite a few foreign judges who have been recruited directly from legal practice. Um, either in their home jurisdiction or occasionally abroad. Um, so the professional background is quite diverse. Um, in terms of gender, there is not much diversity at all. Um, I think over that 20-year period there were 16 uh, women foreign judges, so about 7% of the cohort. Um, and so then it just sounds like such an immense task. So... How did you do it? Like, I, I, yeah, can you tell me about your methodology? It just, it sounds huge. Yeah, yeah. So um, the methodology for this kind of descriptive element, you know, describing what was actually happening um, was kind of really important because I just had a lot of unanswered questions. You know, how does foreign judging work in practice? Um, and, you know, who these judges were. So there was a real gap in the record about who had served as foreign judges in the region and, you know, again, how many there were and the proportions um, in each state. Um, and this took quite a bit of work. So in Australia or the United Kingdom, for example, it's pretty easy to get a list of who served on a court, you know, is either available on the website or there are law reports that list the judges. Um, but this kind of data is not so easily accessible in the Pacific. So I ended up auditing all the judgments of these courts over the 20 years to identify the names of judges and then cross-referencing all these names with notices of appointment, um, media reports and judicial biographies and memoirs to get both a list of the judges on the courts and then to work out who was a foreign judge and where they were from and what they did beforehand. Um, so it's kind of an immense task of <laughs> judicial biography in a way. Um, and I'm sure there are judges that I missed um, in this process. Um, the other part of the descriptive element, which we might get to talk about a bit more later, is, um, you know, how this practice actually works. You know, how, how, how does it, um, how is it that a judge who's working in Australia ends up working in the Pacific for some of his or her career? Um, and so um, to answer those kind of questions, I did um, quite a few interviews with judges and also with officials um, who were, involved in um, recruiting judges to Pacific states. And so then when there is this sort of um, not necessarily attention but, you know, there's foreign judges who've worked previously or are currently serving on their home country sort of bench and then they come and work also on this foreign um, bench at the same time, is there any significance of nationality that you found? Yeah, definitely. So um, for, I think the significance of nationality will come up for any judge, but when you're talking about a judge who's a current serving judge in their home jurisdiction um, and is then working abroad, um, you get kind of interesting questions about how to balance the responsibilities, you know, which ones come first to the Pacific state or to the judge's home state. So, of course, there's some practical questions to deal with. So a lot of the judges 
um, that I know in this situation will take leave from what is their home court, their home full-time court, um, so that they can serve in the Pacific. Some do this in their annual leave. They spend their holidays <laughs> working in the Pacific. Others will take a kind of, you know, one or two years secondment. Um, so they retain their position in, in New Zealand or wherever and then spend a couple of years in Vanuatu. Um, and some courts actually sponsor this actively. Um, they, they've, they've set up these relationships between courts to allow for secondments. Um, but in all cases, I guess a serving judge will need permission to serve overseas. It's kind of like taking on outside of, um, employment. Um, and usually there's no problems with that. You know, the head of jurisdiction, some are more receptive to their judges going overseas than others, but usually they just give their permission and, and they work something out. Um, the really difficult questions arise when maybe professional ethical obligations uh, come into play or where um, the overseas jurisdiction becomes a little bit controversial. Um, so these are quite difficult to navigate. Um, so one uh, one example and one one part of I, in the book I talk about this really difficult case in which an Australian lawyer um, serving in you know a part of the legal profession in Victoria in Australia um, she accepted a judicial appointment in Fiji um, whilst it was uh, under the military government. Um, and so this government had come to power by coup and had set up an interim military government. It had fired all the you know existing judges and was now hiring new judges to fill the courts. Um, and a Fijian NGO actually made a complaint, you know, to the Legal Services Commission in Victoria, um, you know, saying that that by accepting this appointment, this um, lawyer had you know engaged in professional misconduct. Um, so the claim was rejected, but it does illustrate how you know. Um, um foreign judges kind of have to navigate responsibilities in their home jurisdiction um, as well as the jurisdiction in which they're serving um, and they can become a little bit blurred. Um, I think for judges too, there's a sense in which they feel um, that they're representatives of their home jurisdictional court. Um, so we've seen in... Um, Hong Kong, um, for example, where um, uh, there's been huge controversy about, you know, UK judges sitting on the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal and they've had to navigate some of these issues about well, whether continuing to serve in Hong Kong, would that be damaging to the reputation of the UK Supreme Court? And, you know, different judges come up with different answers. Yeah, I think it is really interesting in the context of Hong Kong and, you know, um, it offers some sort of commentary perhaps on the sort of rule of law and constitution in Hong Kong as it sort of currently exists. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that anymore. Um, only to say that, that this idea of a foreign judge accepting appointment overseas is a little bit different to when a judge accepts appointment in their home country. Um, and the way I kind of explain it is that sometimes it is seen as an affirmation of the choice worthiness of the foreign court. So the argument is, well, if all these eminent judges are serving in this jurisdiction, they don't have a problem. The jurisdiction must be fine when it comes to rule of law um, and uh, judicial independence and the like. Um, so it's part of that reputational rationale, if you like, for foreign judging. Um, and, you know, judges themselves, you know, have to make a decision about whether they want to be seen in that way, even if they don't believe that that's what's happening. But the perception of judges um, matters both in the home state from where they're from their, their state of origin, but also in the, the, the state in which they're serving. So they've kind of got two different jurisdictions or constituents to, to um, work, work to as well. Yeah, and that's interesting because you can sort of, um, I mean, one another thing that came through in the book is that perhaps being a foreign judge, or sorry, being a judge in a foreign court can actually impact on the obligations of that judge in their country of origin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, so then let's turn to the chapter on constitutional adjudication. Um, and, you know, you wrote about 
like over 80 constitutional cases. Um, you've talked a little bit about knowledge reach and knowledge gap already. Um, I want to understand a bit more about how knowledge gaps in local custom may impact on the task of foreign judging. Mm. Yeah, so one kind of knowledge gap that I think is fairly obvious um, but also really important is this IAS knowledge about local uh, Indigenous law and custom. Um, so Indigenous customary law is um, treated differently in each of the nine states that I look at, um, but in some it's kind of a recognised source of law. Um, but in all of them, it's a very strongly felt community value, you know, that the custom informs how the community operates. So it's relevant. It's relevant to judicially, you know, the interpretation of law and the application of law. Um, and there have been several studies um, by other scholars that criticise the reticence of Pacific courts, so this is both local and foreign judges, to draw on custom when interpreting constitutions. Um, and several reasons have been suggested, um, but you can see why the use of foreign judges who don't have the knowledge of Indigenous custom and for whom customary law is actually quite a foreign concept. It's very different to the Western system of law and the framework of common law and statute that most foreign judges are familiar. Um, you can see why, you know, the use of foreign judges might contribute to this hesitation to draw on custom. Um, so some Pacific states have made real efforts to um, encourage and um, even require judges to consider custom, but with limited um, success. Um, I think part of the um, part part of the well, the, I think that this is changing with the demographics of the foreign judges as well. So, um, and with changes in the countries from which they're drawn. So, if we take um, uh, judges from Africa and judges from Sri Lanka, you know, they are already experienced in dealing with legal pluralism in a different context, but they can bring that experience to bear when they come to the Pacific. And Australia and New Zealand, um, although quite different in how they're treating Indigenous law and custom, are also, um, you know, the law and the, the judiciary are coming to deal with custom and Indigenous law um, a lot more directly. So I think that that could change um, and it's interesting to think then about whether experience as a judge in the Pacific brings something back, say, to Australia and New Zealand. Um, but, yes, I, I think that that it's... it's um, one of the more difficult and one of the more problematic aspects of using foreign judges, um, and you can see it in the development of the law. Yeah, and so sort of picking up on that point, because the sort of three recurring features that you identify um, in the sort of case analysis are firstly the influence of the common law, second the limited immigration of custom and constitutional law, and third a predominantly textualist approach to constitutional interpretation. Do you want to talk more about um, these sort of points? Yeah, so what I... The methodology is difficult here. So I, I didn't want to say that foreign all foreign judges interpret the Constitution in the same way because, of course, they don't. All judges bring a different approach, um, which is a little bit frustrating but also very interesting. <laughs> um, and so I, I didn't want to make a causal claim here. I'm not saying that foreign judges mean that, that the the constitutional adjudication will necessarily take these approaches. What I did what I did come to find through the research and through reading the cases, what there's these kind of predominant features of constitutional um, decision making um, across the Pacific states, of course with some variation and of course with some exceptions, but predominantly you've got this textual approach, you've got this kind of reliance on common law and you've got this limited integration of custom. Um, and I think that these three points make sense and they resonate with some of the limitations of the knowledge that foreign judges bring um, or limitations of their knowledge, so their knowledge gaps, but also their knowledge reach, which is where the common law kind of influence comes in. Um, so I think it seems to make sense <laughs> that that, um, that having foreign judges um, 
on Pacific courts and they've been serving there since the beginning, right? So you've got this kind of building up of, of precedent um, that's been informed by these ideas. Um, um, yeah, so without saying, you know, all judges decide this way, I think that it's clear that, that, that foreign judging and foreign judging as it exists in the Pacific has led or contributed to some of these features of constitutional adjudication. Yeah, that's really interesting that there is this sort of um, almost specific, perhaps culture is not the right word, but sort of practice surrounding foreign judges in the Pacific. Um, just sort of going off on on a bit of a tangent, is there anything like, you know, the rest of the world can learn from this sort of experience of, would you say, um, foreign judging in the Pacific and this sort of aspect of it? Um. Maybe. I mean, it depends on what they're trying to learn about. <laughs> I think that, um, that uh, I think that the research and the book, um, what I hope it shows is that nationality of judges for various reasons and not just in relation to constitutional adjudication and knowledge, but for the other reasons that I discuss about representation and connection to people, um, I think it's not so much that, that um, you know, you can learn from foreign judges. It, I think the lesson to be learned is that the nationality of the judge um, is important. Um, it's not everything, but it's important. And depending on what kind of um, judiciary you want, um, you might want to attribute more or less importance to nationality of the judges. I think that's that's the broader lesson. Yeah, no, and I think that's a really interesting point. Um, is there then a role for that local judges play in sort of bridging the gap in this area? Yeah, definitely. So in several of the Pacific states, um, foreign judges either sit on a court alongside local judges um, or they sit on appeals um, from decisions decided in a court below by local judges. Um, and often this just goes unremarked, you know, the, the bench decides as the bench, there's no kind of distinguishing between them. But in a really few cases, there's these kind of suggestions about foreign judges deferring to local judges or endorsing their decisions. And I found these cases really interesting because it's a rare examples of when judges are situating themselves as foreign judges and other judges as local judges and making that distinction themselves. Um, so I think these cases were interesting because they're decisions that were somewhat controversial. Um, and I think that when foreign judges do this it's kind of deference or acknowledgement of local judges and emphasise the, the knowledge and legitimacy that local judges bring, I think they do that to bolster the legitimacy of the decisions that they're making. That's a really interesting point too. Um, so then in this sort of, sort of this context of legitimacy and then related to judicial impartiality and independence, because that's the next chapter of the book, um, can you tell me some of these distinctive issues with regards to judicial, judicial independence and impartiality in the use of foreign judges? I think the impartiality issue is a really important one. So when I said before that one of the key rationales that's often offered for um, the use of foreign judges is, is this idea that they are distant from the community and this is, this is an advantage for judges. Um, and I think what I was trying to do in this chapter is kind of explode this myth of impartiality a little bit. This is a really common claim. It's made within Pacific communities. It's made by those outside the Pacific. Um, and I think that there are a few problems with it um, and um, how, it, how it, you know, and the implications of it are also problematic. So I think part of the problem is that this kind of argument about impartiality is kind of far too broad an approach. So in common law jurisdictions when, you know, you've got this legal test for bias, you know, which govern when a judge can sit on a case or not, you know, it's usually confined to a direct and personal interest in the case. 
it doesn't extend to general identity characteristics or membership of a group. You know, every judge has a nationality, every judge has a race and cultural affiliation, if you like, and the claim that a judge might be partial on that basis, you know, would kind of disqualify most judges from most cases. So I felt uncomfortable with the kind of framing of this impartiality test as it applies to foreign judges in the Pacific. Um, I think to this assumption that foreign judges are neutral and local judges are not is kind of perpetuating some colonial stereotypes about the capacity of Pacific peoples for self-government. You know, it really diminishes. Well, the risk is that it will diminish the reputation of local judges, you know, who do recuse themselves, who do what they can to demonstrate impartiality um, in ways that are appropriate to small Pacific communities where there are extensive family connections. There's this great case in Samoa where the judge actually said, well, I have a an extended family relationship to both parties in this case, you know, what do you want me to do? And he ended up on the case because, you know, he declared the interest and and it's accepted that in Samoa extensive kin relationships like this occur across the spectrum of government. Um, so there's a different kind of uh, context in which these decisions have to be made um, in the Pacific. Um so I think, of course, it makes sense. You know, if a local judge has to recuse themselves and there's no other judge available, you know, recruiting a judge from outside, you know, just makes perfect sense. And there are examples of that. So there's a case in Vanuatu where I think the former chief magistrate was sort of challenging his dismissal and making claims about defamation against other members of the court. And, of course, in that situation, when all the judges of the court are kind of uh, conflicted, um, that bringing in a New Zealand judge, you know, made great sense. Um, but I don't think that that kind of is enough to provide a rationale for a widespread preference of foreign judges over local judges, which is sometimes how this is framed. Um, the second issue that I that I see um, um, with this kind of emphasis on the impartiality of foreign judges is that, is that it kind of overlooks some of the threats to the independence of foreign judges themselves. So um, the greater threat, I think, in the Pacific is that most foreign judges, not all, but most, are appointed on short renewable contracts. And, of course, this is a great big red flag for judicial independence usually um, because the concern is that you know, when your contract is renewable, that you will decide cases or be influenced to decide cases in favour of whoever's responsible for the renewal of the appointment. Um, so this kind of threat to judicial independence of foreign judges themselves is kind of routinely downplayed, if you like, in Pacific courts and other courts where foreign judges are used. You know, it's always said, oh, but it's necessary to appoint foreign judges for short terms. And, you know, the reputation and integrity of the judge mean that, you know, there's no question about their deciding cases to favour one side or the other because their, their integrity is, you know, impeccable. Um, and I think neither claim really stands up to generalizable scrutiny, you know. So it might be said that the risk of undue influence doesn't arise as sharply for foreign judges who are sitting judges or retired judges in their home state. I think the risk does arise when you've got a judge who's been appointed from the legal profession and might want to, you know, remain a judge. Um, and so um, there's that kind of issue. Um, there's also... Um, uh, another complication, which is that it's not just the executive that's responsible for uh, the renewal of a foreign judge's contract in all cases, that sometimes uh, contracts and funding are at the behest of a donor organisation. So there are cases where um, donor states have kind of said, well, your two-year contract is up, um, we don't have money to renew it. Therefore, you know, you're out of a job. So um, the the dimensions of influence when it comes to foreign judges are not just the usual kind of suspect of the executive government being the influential, you know, potential uh, threat to independence. It can come from other sides as well. So I think all of this means is that, that I... I came to see this kind of overstating of the impartiality of foreign judges and kind of understating of the threats to their independence. And I found that dynamic interesting, but also something that really needs to be reset and addressed um, to maintain the, you know, integrity and independence of 
the system of foreign judging in the Pacific. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, I mean, this is one of the sort of points that came through, um, whether or not Pacific governments actually influence or attempt to influence foreign judges that preside over their courts, especially sort of through these sort of informal mechanisms such as, sorry, not informal mechanisms, but indirectly rather, through things like issuing visas, you know, um, terms of appointment, remuneration. Um, Do you want to talk any more about that? I think um, it's, I think a lot of these practices are not, not done with the express intent of influencing judges. I think that, that you know, you can see um, why short-term contracts are somehow preferred as more practical um, for foreign judges, um, you know, that, that, you know, that they only have to commit funding for a year, for example, rather than the life of a, you know, a judge. Um, and um, another justification why short-term contracts are used is that, that if you're serious about localising, so replacing foreign judges with local judges, you don't want a foreign judge, you know, appointed for life or until they were 70, taking up a position on the bench that you might then want to fill a bit earlier with a local judge. So I think there's good reasons why you why um, a short-term appointment might be um, appropriate Um the concern is that it's just become the standard practice um, and it's used without really thinking about, well, is this judge, you know, do we need a judge for three months or do we actually need a judge for five years? And, you know, it's, it's more, you know, is it better to have a five-year contract rather than a three-month one that gets renewed indefinitely? Um, so some of those questions I think could do with more thought because the concern is that even if um, the executive government um, is not minded to interfere with judicial independence, routinely, you know, renews contracts um, and um, does the right thing, there is a risk, that, of course, that, that they may not. Um, and so um, the renewability of contracts can be seen as a way to, you know, influence the composition of the bench um, and reward you know, um, those who decide cases favourably or are seen to decide cases favourably to the executive government. Um, The other problem that arises um, in the Pacific, in some Pacific states, um, is the removal of foreign judges. Um, So usually it's very hard to remove a judge. You know, they've got protections on tenure. There's a whole process that has to be gone through to investigate um, establish that removal is for cause and then a constitutional process that might involve the parliament as well as the executive. Um, that's not often used. Um, if if uh, executive government wants to remove a foreign judge for whatever reason, um, they tend to simply just not renew their contract. Um, it may be that they're just not invited back to sit on the Pacific court to hear cases. Um or um, in extreme cases, um, uh, judges' visas have been cancelled. So foreign judges, unlike citizen judges, rely on immigration laws to be able to enter and work in the state. And so if they do not have a visa, then they can't actually perform their judicial duty. Um, And that's, you know, not good for judicial independence to be able to do that. And we see exactly these issues playing out in Kiribati at the moment. Um, and in the past we've seen judges removed um, from Nauru and Vanuatu um, just by cancelling visas. Mm. Um, So then I guess my next question is, have you, in your research, did you see a sort of drive to localisation or is it, does, you know, foreign judges or foreign judging just seem sort of established? Um, I think... There's a bit of both. So, again, there's some variation across the different states in the Pacific. Um, so, and I think foreign judging can be entrenched at the same time that there is a drive to localisation. I'll explain what I mean by that. So, just to be clear, so localisation is this idea that over time foreign judges will be replaced by local or citizen judges. Um, and 
I guess the assumption, the starting assumption when Pacific states became independent and were setting up their courts was that, you know, over time more of our citizens will become lawyers, they'll study and get a legal education, and so then we'll have a greater pool of people to draw on to fill the bench. Um, And so this is kind of what's happened in Papua New Guinea, which is by far the largest of the Pacific states that I look at. It has the largest legal profession, but also the largest population. Um, And you can see that most of the judges of the Supreme and National Courts in Papua New Guinea are now Papua New Guineans. Um, But there's still a very few small number of foreign judges that they use. They tend to be people who have worked as lawyers in the in Papua New Guinea um, who were then recruited to the bench, so kind of on that borderline between foreign and local in a way. Um, but also some Australian judges of the federal courts serve on the, um, the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court. Um, so even though I think Papua New Guinea could be completely localised into, you know, these courts could be entirely made of, uh, up of um, Papua New Guinean citizens. It's not. Um, and the reasons given for that is that um, this kind of uh, building these relationships with other courts is important to the Papua New Guinean court. Um, and another reason too is that they value some of the particular expertise that foreign judges bring so um things like uh, complex commercial matters which you know mining company litigation some of these kind of um matters are are things that that the Papua New Guinea court and the chief justice feels you know they can really benefit from um using foreign judges who have direct experience of such matters um, in their home jurisdiction. Um, So there is this sort of sense that, that, so Papua New Guinea is pretty much, you know, very much on the way to localisation. Some of the other states are are varied um, and there are a range of reasons, um, you know, why localisation you know, occurs and, and how it proceeds. One is just political will, you know, whether whether the executive wants to localise and whether the courts want to localise and whether the, the legal profession want to. Um, uh, sometimes the barriers are simply um, things like judicial pay and conditions that, that lawyers can have a better life and earn more money as lawyers and don't want to take up judicial appointment. Um, and then in some cases, localization is really impeded. And Fiji is an example of this, where there were more, a greater proportion of Fijian judges serving 20 years ago than there are today. And I think there is an example of perhaps the misuse of the appointment of foreign judges on short-term contracts. So in Fiji, the law says that the constitution says that foreign judges must be appointed on three-year contracts, three-year terms, sorry, but citizen judges must be appointed until the age of retirement. Um, so there are very few Fijian judges um, and a lot of foreign judges serving on three-year renewable terms. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, process has has impeded localization. Um, there, the rhetoric from the, the Fijian government is that judges are all appointed on merit and merit is, you know, blind to nationality. So they kind of use this argument to justify um, judicial appointments. Um, but behind it is this concern that, that they're misusing um, the renewability of short-term contracts. Um, and that's like a really fascinating sort of really fascinating point and like examples that came through in the book. And that's, I think, something that for me, I really enjoyed reading about all of these different examples and seeing how it plays out um, in different Pacific courts. Um, so, Nana, Anna, bringing all of these points together, um, your final chapter is called A Transnational Profession and Practice. I'm wondering, do you have any key takeaways um, from your book? I think the key takeaway um, is that by looking at, um, you know, how um, foreign judges decide cases, these questions about impartiality um, and independence and also something that we haven't talked about, which is fine, but also this idea that judges are 
foreign judges are less likely to be seen as representing the people of the community. Um, um, so all these factors kind of come together and I say that we are more likely to see foreign judges and they're more likely to see themselves as kind of representatives of this profession. You know, they've got legal skills, they've got judicial skills, they've got transnational, you know, international experience. So they've got these transferable skills that, that allow them to be judges at home and somewhere else. Um, and, you know, you see the threads of this idea in all of the, the factors that we've discussed here today, you know, this technical common law approach to constitutional interpretation kind of emphasises expert legal knowledge and skills and this emphasis on impartiality um, kind of links to this idea of judging as a profession with professional values. Impartiality is one of those. Um, so I think that that this is what I mean by a transnational profession and practice, so that instead of this emphasis on judges as representatives of the people or the state or, you know, judges as Samoan judges or judges as Australian judges, we see this kind of judging as, as a more transnational profession. Um, so and I think the effect of this is kind of twofold. So the first is that the emphasis on these kind of professional qualities means that some of the things that judges lack, you know, like a sense of allegiance, a sense of responsibility to the community that come with membership and, you know, intimate knowledge of the community are somehow less, you know, they're, they're covered up, they're less important because we've got professional uh, values coming to the fore and this kind of grounds the legitimacy of foreign judging but also the idea that professional skills are transferable across ju jurisdictional boundaries um, and this sort of underwrites the practice and success of foreign judging. Um, so I think that the key takeaway from the book is that the nationality of the judges on courts, constitutional jurisdiction matters, you know, that it does make a difference whether or not a judge is foreign. Um, and this, this matters even, this matters in the Pacific when thinking about foreign judges, but this also matters in other countries when just thinking about judges. Um, and it helps to explain or understand why, you know, in some states the appointment of a foreign judge is, you know, not possible. It's unlawful, which um, is inconceivable. Um, and then in others why, why it's accepted practice. Um, and I guess I'd like to emphasise that it's kind of by studying Pacific states, which are often overlooked and excluded from comparative study, um, and really examining constitutional systems on their own terms that kind of make these insights possible. Um, so I guess the other key point I'd like readers to take away from the book is that the constitutional experience of all states, even the small ones <laughs> that are overlooked in the literature, um, can and do make a huge contribution to kind of theoretical and global understandings of constitutional practice and theory and that they really do deserve our attention. Yeah, and that's wonderful. And actually I think that's what initially drew me to your work, that these sort of under-researched areas that aren't often a feature of comparative constitutional law, you know, it does matter and, it, they, you know, these lessons actually do matter and they are really broadly applicable. Um, yeah, it's just, it was such an enriching book. So thank you so much, Anna. No, thank you um, so much for sharing. Um, but just before you go, I've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell me what you're working on now? Sure. So... Um, it may not surprise you that it's more foreign judges, <laughs> um, but I'm taking the study global. Um, so with Simon Young uh, from Hong Kong University, I'm co-editing a handbook of foreign judges on domestic courts. Um, and it's a really exciting project that um, brings together judges and academics um, who are writing about the use of foreign judges on all kinds of courts, not just constitutional courts, um, in over 30 jurisdictions across the world um, and thinking about different kinds of courts, you know, like foreign judges on international commercial courts, international criminal courts um, and anti-corruption mechanisms as well as some of the constitutional issues that we've talked about today. Um, so that's kind of the next project. Um, but beyond foreign judges, I'm also working on a lot of uh, different projects on constitutional change um, 
which is a bit more uh, takes me a bit away from the Pacific um, at the moment. Um, so questions about the relationship between constitutions and peace agreements, women and constitutions, um, and how domestic constitutions interface with international law, um, some of these big questions. Um, but, of course, I'm still interested in the Pacific and how constitutions work there, um, and in particular looking at questions of how constitutional histories, histories about how constitutions were made and drafted, um, affect how they've been interpreted um, by foreign judges um, later in the history of the states. Um, You sound exceptionally busy. Um, Even just as you talked about the first project that you're working on with Professor Young, I sort of, I got a bit of, like, I got a bit frightened thinking about 30 um, looking at 30 different jurisdictions. Um, But, yeah, it all sounds really fascinating and hopefully we can invite you back and Professor Young as well to talk about um, that new book. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, So just to sort of uh, bring it together, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr Anna Jezges about her book Foreign Judges in the Pacific. It was published by Heart Publishing in 2021. This is the New Books Network um, and you've been listening to New Books in Law.